All right, welcome back to another episode of Self-Directed. Today, I'm going to be flipping the script on Mitchell and interviewing him since he got to pepper me with questions uh, in, in last episode. So, Mitchell, start out. Tell us, what do you do right now? And I'll keep it under 11 minutes. No. <laughs> um, Please. I get to have fun every day as Chief Operating Officer of Praxis. There are so many different fun parts about what we do and what I get to do day in and day out. Right now, I am intensely focused on just how do, how do we do things better? How do we talk about the program better? How do we build better systems to make marketing and sales work better? How do we spread the good news of Praxis into the world more effectively? And overall, big picture, think about just what do we want the company to be and how to, how, what, what things do we need to be doing now to get there? And it's a lot of fun. And it's, it's really new being in this kind of position where, you know, where you and I are in the driver's seat versus, um, you know, versus working as an employee. So I love it and it's fun and I'm excited to talk more about it. All right. I'm put you on the spot real quick. What's, what's your favorite thing about work recently, either a project or just like more, more general Oh man, hard to pick just one. There's been so many things that I, that we've been doing lately and it's almost May right now at the time of the recording this, April 21st. And every week I kind of, I have to remind myself how far along we are in this year and how much has happened. And that's, that's awesome because we're, we're moving at a quick clip and like, coming up with experiments and, and getting them deployed fast. I think, I think one of my recent favorite things was we've literally been talking about creating a new program guide for months and we just decided off the cuff to do it and got it shipped in under a week. That was an awesome thing. It's going to be really valuable. I'm ready to get that up and rolling. That's, that's just one example. That was like under a week project and it, it's like a comprehensive thing. It wasn't like a very quick fix. It, it's, it's what I would want it to be right now. So that's one example. There are so many yeah. others. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. I remember we were talking about it back in January and we were looking at it like, all right, in order to get this to where we want it to be, it's probably going to be, you know, three to four weeks. Got to set up a designer. We got to rewrite all the content and all the stuff. And at, eventually I think we just got sick and tired of not having program guide ready to go. So you uh, made sure we got it done in a week. Yeah. Um, all right, so let's, uh, let's dig into your, your background and story a little bit. You know, pretty much what we're doing with these dual interviews is telling our stories and how we kind of started leading a more self-directed career in life. Where does your story begin? For the intents of keeping this under 14 hours for a podcast, I think that it all begins at age six years old for me. And then we're going to fast forward really, really quickly. We're going to fast forward really quickly. I knew at age six that I wanted to be a pediatric neurosurgeon. That was like my life mission. I don't know why. Tell me why. I picked up a book. It was Gifted Hands by Ben Carson. Yeah, the guy who ran for president and lost oh, a few years wow. ago. Oh, wow. Yeah. But I knew Robot. from a very young, young age, and I was the kid that spent like all my summers in the library, and I was the overachieving 4.0 participate in every student organization 
on sport and on the sports teams and like had to be the best at everything because I had this, I had this very deliberate vision of what I wanted to do. And I knew that in order to, in order to have a shot at that dream, I had to be the best. I had to be the best at everything. I had to get into every school, all that kind of stuff because there just wasn't another route to medical school. And in particular, the type of, of medical school, like that field that I was interested in. And I carried that with me until I got into college. And that's when everything changed for me because mm-hmm. I think that was the first time in my entire life after I'd, I'd fixated on this vision where I realized and maybe not realized, but the first time that I admitted, I admitted to myself that I didn't know what the hell I wanted to do with my life. And it, would, it had been so easy for so many years to fixate on this prefabricated journey, this, this map that was already a course that there was a playbook for, and yeah. all the steps were easy to know. Because I was the guy who knew how to beat tests. I knew if there was a... If there was a an obstacle course, you know, like school was an obstacle course and there was a formula for winning it. And I loved doing that. I was very good at that. But I think that I over-optimized for that in lieu of just admitting, I don't know what to do and there's no course. And that, that terrified me, that terrified me. And when I got into college, that's where it all came to light for the first time. Yeah. I, I think, I mean, I think people are expected to be on a certain type of path, you know, at as early of an age as they can be, instead of, hey, like whether it's at a younger age, as a teen, you're going through high school, like, hey, this is a time of discovery. What are you interested in? Figure, you know, start to explore. I think you're kind of, everyone's incentivized to think from a, you know, like a path perspective and figuring out what is that path for you as an individual? Well, what I think happened to me, and I think I see this now looking back with a lot more clarity when I, when I speak to younger people too, especially like the high achieving scholastic academic type high achievers is that I realized or, or discovered at a very young age, the things that, that were rewarded socially, both, both, when you win conversations with other people, in addition to what was awarded within the structures that I was used to operating in, which was school, school kept score, yeah. school kept score with grades. And when, when you're a young person that makes good grades and you're the smart bookworm nerd type person, like everyone around you begins to per- perpetuate that lie that like, they, they have a, a, a different set of expectations for you. Oh, you're the valedictorian. You're going to go to this yeah. prestigious. You're, in, all these you're in AP classes yep. and then you're surrounded by, you're, you like insulate yourself and you're surrounded by other people that are on that same path. So it's, it's just like constant reinforcement. Yep, it, it, it is. And you, this option set that unfolds in front of you from the expectation of, like parents and teachers and everybody that's older than you, all the adults in your life is, is this, this path that you are supposed to be better. Like you are supposed to go do a, an uncharted course of, you know, and, and go do a, something really prestigious. Like you're a smart kid. Mm-hmm. You should take advantage of that. And so I think as a young kid, I fixated 
on the most prestigious sounding, highest income possible thing that I could come up with. And a pediatric neurosurgeon was the best thing I had data on at the time. I think I, I remember reading I just... a... <laughs> I, uh, I remember reading an article at, you know, at like six or seven, some scientific review journal. I, I read a lot of weird things as a kid, but I remember reading some kind of stat. I remember the number $963,000 per year. And it was because there was such a scarcity of pediatric neurosurgeons in the United States. So many of them were on call. They made absolute bank. And I didn't even know about what medical school costs or whatever. But like as a kid, that was a huge number. And I was like, all right, great. That's the, that's the coolest sounding thing. That's what I'm going to do. All right. So you're, you're very, you're path oriented, but it's, it's kind of like, this is a scoreboard. I'm, I'm going to be at the top of the scoreboard. I'm going to win. I'm going to win the game. Yeah. Yep. And you, and you get to college. What, what changes? I think several things. I think, I think first and foremost, I was suddenly away from everybody and everything that I knew. And I, I felt the temptation and also the opportunity at the same time to reinvent myself. And I think for the first time in my life, I, I felt that freedom to be a little bit more open and honest and explore other things was something that I just, I hadn't even, whether it even existed before or not, I had never just, taken my sights off of the app of beating the game. Yep. And I think that that culminated from getting into school and realizing that, that school was not designed like college in particular it was not about it was not about hacking the tests and succeeding it was about following the rules it was about participating in accordance with somebody else's rules and i i i hated that i because in high school i i could never go to class because i was in involved in so many extracurriculars and show up and make an you know perfect score in a test and be rewarded i could still get the award that we were competing for in whatever avenue I took to get there. And in college, I ran into roadblocks for the first time where suddenly it was not about mastery of curriculum. The rules of the game had changed. It was now about show up. You have to be in all the classes. You have to, you have to take the pop quiz on a Friday, a night after you've been out partying on 8 a.m. class. And the, the pop quiz is who won the Super Bowl on Sunday and it's worth 10% of your grade. Yeah. Oh, we don't care that you, you set the curve on seven other grade, uh, seven other like tests or whatever. You have to jump through the hoops because that's what I say the rules of the game are. And that did not work for me. Out of curiosity, what class was that, that they were asking you who was last week's Super Bowl winner? So that, that may be an off the cuff. I don't know if that's an actual legitimate pop quiz, but, but that's, that's kind oh, of the variety, okay. the gotcha, variety, gotcha. that's, that's the variety that you yeah. can expect. There were a yeah, lot that's... of, there were a lot of those type of, like literally I had a, I had a, a class that was required for my major 
that the the professor made us watch How to Train Your Dragon. We had to come to class and watch this and write an essay on it. It was a mandatory class. Was it a medieval times history class, at least? No, it, it Is was there like any a type of connection. It was like a journalism class. Okay. Um, yeah. All right. Well, it's interesting because I think most people usually when they're, they're thinking about like the transition from high school to college, they see college as, all right, you're taking steps closer to personal freedom. And in your case, it, it was more restrictive than, you know, your high school experience. Yeah, it was, it was in many ways, both like outside the classroom, I found so much more freedom than I'd ever imagined. And that was probably, sure. you know, both destructive and opportunistic. There were a lot of cool things that I, I did outside of the classroom that I think were even better learning experiences than what I got inside the classroom. But when I got in the classroom, it made me challenge all my assumptions about everything I thought I wanted to do in life because just the idea of perpetually jumping through hoops killed me inside. So it, it kind of finally caught up to you. What were there like, was there a particular experience you had where it's like, Hey, actually this all kind of feels like BS to me, or was it just like over time culmination of things? It was a slow burn, but there, there are at least two, I, I could probably come up with 10, but there are at least two that really stand out to me today when I look back. Like me going through college was a struggle with authority writ large. Like it, it was no longer about mastery. It was about playing somebody else's game. And there's one, one particular scenario in the classroom, in the context of the classroom, that this is an authority battle between me and a professor. And, and I, I remember it vividly. This was a class of like 400 people. It was an introductory, it was an introductory course. The professor who was teaching it had usually only taught um, graduate level courses. And he came into the, the class first day. One of the, I always went during syllabus week to figure out the, what the rules were. And I remember he came into the first class and he said, hey, I'm going to throw the syllabus out the window this, this year. So this is my first time teaching an entry-level class. And he said, so we're going to play it by year. So I reserve the right to change the syllabus at any point in the year. But I just want to let you know, I'll give you a heads up if I change anything. And that, that was a red flag to me immediately. I was just like, okay, this guy is going to play hardball, whatever. But I'm going to figure out how to hack the test all the same. This was a class that I felt confident I could get an A in before it even started. It was, it was material I knew. It was introduction to animal science. I, I knew this. Like I grew up living and breathing this stuff, small town America. And we, we didn't really start having conflicts until about halfway, three quarters of the way through the semester. Whenever the scenarios like who won the Super Bowl started coming up. So I, I was notorious for rarely going to class. And after, I think it was like the third or fourth test in where I had made like perfect scores or, or, or very close to perfect scores on the first few tests. And the fourth, whatever test it was, I missed one question that was multiple choice and worth like 20 points. And I got like a C on it. And 
when I got my test back, I looked at it. It was a question about meat judging. Meat judging, which I happened to, to be doing at the time at a very many, high level. Many experiences meat judging. I was, I was competing at the national level literally during this, this point in time in my life. And I knew that I was right. And I, I looked at my test. I looked at my test and I, ha I had all the answers right. And it was, it was like such an obscure way to ask a question. It was like two columns and one had numbers and one had letters and you had to match them up correctly. And I just crossed it all out. And I just wrote all of the answers by hand because the, the matrix, the, the way to answer the question was just ridiculous. And they, they, I got a C because of this. And I took it back to him and I was like, I just don't understand you know, what's going on with this. I got all the questions right. He's like, well, you didn't do it right. And I was like, well, I got the questions right. And it's like, well, you need to follow the instructions. And I was like, the goal of this class is to demonstrate mastery of the material. I am demonstrating mastery of the material. This is not about following the rules. I have to have this credit to indicate that I have knowledge of this subject in order to complete my degree. That's the way this works. And it just refused to budge on this. And so I, I, I just kind of let it, let it fly, whatever. I've made perfect scores on the first few tests. I'll get through this. So we get through two more tests. I make almost perfect scores on them. And we have like 400 people in this class. I know probably 200 of them. And we're having study groups and I, you know, asking around or whatever. And I am, I'm outperforming amongst most, most of my peers. And I'm asking grades as we get near to the end of the year. Like, what are you, what are you doing? Like almost all of my friends are on, on part of making A and I'm not. And it's because of this, it's because of this, this one test where, you know, following the rules is more important than knowing the material. And two, because I haven't been attending. And this is when I find out. On Fridays, sometimes he's been doing pop quizzes that are, that are weighted worth more than tests with like, <laughs> what day of the week is it? Well, you know, who won the Super Bowl? Like questions like that. Anyway, fast forward, we get to the end of the year and I send him a nasty email, really long email. And it was like kind of well articulated, but it was like way too long explaining why I didn't understand how I could not possibly get an A if I'd been killing the tests and we go to the last test. This is where it all started to really open up for me. We, we go to the last test and you had to do a study guide in order to get your last test. You had to bring it to class to get your test. And before we started the D exam, the TA stands up and he said, I just wanted to let everybody know that if you put the same answers on your test as he said, the test is the exact same as the study guide. If you put the exact same answers on the test as you listed on the study guide, we're counting double points off. And there are, I, Wait, there are. What? Hold on, explain that to me real quick. Study guide is the same as the test. So what, how would you not put the same answers? Exactly, understand. exactly. I stand up, there are 400 people in this class and I stand up, I'm in, I sit front middle to make a point that day front and middle. And I, I raise my hand and I stand up in front of 400 people. And I ask him, I said, doesn't it make more sense to leave the test blank then? And I'm, I'm not kidding. 400 people start clapping because everybody's like, this is so ridiculous. But what, what did they actually want you to do? Follow the rules. No, I, I'm, but I'm confused on what the actual rules were. So like they wanted you to just copy the study guide or what? 
No, they wanted you to come up with additional alternate answers than what you put on the study guide. And the thing is, like most of these questions were were not like multiple choice. There were not multiple answers. There's one answer. And it's if you did your study guide right, you probably put that one answer down. It was just an insane thing. It was an insane scenario. So I didn't not only did I get every question on the test right, but there was like a 20 point bonus question. I got that right. I made a, I made well over a perfect score on the test and I'm, I'm going to check my grade and they're not going to give me an A. So well, what I are going to give you a B okay. and I am up in arms about it. And finally this professor responds to my email. He invites me to his office and he just berates me for like 45 minutes and yelling at me like I'm some punk kid, like, son, listen to me. You just don't understand the way the world works. And I tell him, I was like, listen, I'm a customer. I, I am, I'm literally paying you to give me a stamp of approval that says, I know this material. And what you are doing is saying, I have to follow your rules in order to get your stamp of approval. And that's not the way this works. This is cut and dry. I either know it or I don't. And I know it. And you know that I know it. And everybody knows that I know it. But you, I refuse to play by your rules. And he, he told me that I was ungrateful, I was disrespectful. And he, he told me, like oh, he, he hated it. And he said, I, I, just, I just wish that I could talk to you in 10 years about this. You're going to regret this. You're going to regret this looking back and screaming at me. And I vividly remember walking out of his office just like, this guy's a lunatic. And I vividly remember seeing his secretary. Her face was just like ghost white. You could tell no student had ever gone in there and defied this guy's authority before. And this is a tenured guy, very well respected in the, in the university. And I was just like, this is so insane. This is so insane. This is material I knew. There was no need for me to, there was no need for me to even come to class. There was no avenue for me to bypass this course, but I had to do it. And not only did I have to do it, I had to play by this guy's rules in order to succeed. And that did not make sense to me. Yeah. So at that point, are you just like, all right, this whole system is not for me or, or what? I, up to that point, I was already pretty notorious as the guy who didn't go to class and still made, you know, um, great grades. Yeah. That's when my performance really declined though. Like my, my attendance really declined. Like I stopped going almost altogether. I still turned in homework. I showed up and I took tests and, and where possible, I had unwritten unspoken agreements with professors. Like, Hey, listen, if I know the stuff, I'm not going to come unless it's interesting to me or you make this worth my while. Like I'm just not going to show up. I've got better things to do with my time. And most professors hated that. Most prof there, there were so many over the next few years that I, I just, I just opted for a B instead of an A because I didn't go to class. And I was just like, whatever, I don't care. Just let's just get out of here. Let's just like, there are other things more important to me outside of the classroom clubs and organiza organizations and jobs and things like that, that I care more about. Gotcha. So what, what were you doing outside of the classroom? What were some of the value? What was, you know, valuable experience you had? Yeah. So I was, I was very involved in student government. I was very involved in my fraternity and Greek life. I, I was waiting tables at, at Chili's, had a part-time job um, for a while waiting tables. I was um, trading 
I was, I was trading uh, papers and homework for beer money. Like for so many of my friends and other people, I'd write their papers or do their homework or whatever. But the thing that was most valuable is my sophomore year, I got involved with this very early stage startup. It was, it was, it wanted to, they wanted to start a media company and, and started by launching a newspaper on the goal was to get on every single campus in the United States. And when I got involved, I think, I think we were the eighth campus. This was their second year in business and it was a handful of people. Mm-hmm. And over the next three years, I spent so much time involved in, in helping launch that on our campus and also help other Big 12 campuses get their local paper off the ground. And it went from, over that course of time, it went from a handful of people that I'd never, I'd literally never, I'd met one of them one time. But it went from a handful of people to several thousand people across the country. By the time that I graduated, this, this paper was on almost 900 campuses. And I got to see so much of the growth and behind the scenes of that. And I got yeah. to like, I got to learn and I also got to be kind of a template, like what we were doing on our campus with, with a small team of my friends and, and peers, that got to be a template for so many other campuses. And it was like real life business. Re- like there, it was something that, that there was no professor saying it's good or bad. It was, it was like, are people reading this or not? Are people right. paying us for ad space or not? Like, is, do I hear, do I hear a hundred people bring up, you know, an article that got written on a, on a weekly basis or not? Is this yeah. something people care about or not? And that was, was so different. It was very outcome driven. Whereas your experiences in the classroom seemed like that was not the priority. It, yeah, it was such a stark contrast to everything going on inside, you know, inside college, if you will. Gotcha. And what were you, was that like a paid internship or were you doing it for credit? What was, what was the situation? Yeah. So it, it, it didn't even start as an internship or anything like that. It started as I, a couple of my friends on campus at the time who I respected and were like relatively well known, they were a couple of years older than me, approached me with, Hey, we're starting this thing. We just like, we found out about this project. We want to launch it on Oklahoma state's campus. Would you, you want to help us? I was like, absolutely. And it was a weekly newspaper. They needed an editor for the weekly content and somebody to, to help write and recruit writers and edit stuff or whatever. And I, I love to write. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Sounds fun. And that first year, literally like f- this paper didn't exist. And we went out and sold tons of ad space to local small businesses. We, we got like, got a Twitter follower following up to like several thousand people in a matter of years. We published 30 newspapers. I got to, I had 30 pieces of my own published and I got to edit probably 500 pieces of content from different students. I got to recruit writers and we got to like ship this weekly paper, which was like such a fascinating thing for me. It was just a fun thing. Over time, I, I actually came over to, you know, I, I grew into the role of like leading the paper for the next year and then like helping grow it over the next year. So it was paid at that point. But for that first year, it was just something that sounded exciting. I had no idea what it was going to turn into. Yeah, you just you found something you enjoyed doing and you committed to it. You got, yeah. you know, you put, put your all into it. Awesome. All right. So let's fast forward a little bit, graduate college and you're trying to figure out like, what do you do now? 
where, where's your head at? Yeah. So by the time I graduated college, I, I reentered this state of like, just fear. I didn't know what I was going to do. I, I had changed my mind at that point and I was, I was really considering law school, but I wasn't 100% sure I was considering graduate school, um, like going to graduate school for journalism and, and a couple of other things like that. I had these ideas floating around, but I knew whatever the case, I needed to go start making some money. And I didn't have a job lined out because I had originally been planning on just going straight to graduate school. And so I, as right as I got out of college, I was like, oh man, I got to figure this out. I got to figure it out fast. I got approached by a recruiter at the time for Northwestern Mutual. And it, it was one of these, like, you can make a lot of money fast and you can learn a ton and you can learn a ton about things that happened to interest me at the time, which was like financial services, financial products, investing, all those kind of things. They were kind of interesting to me at the time. But the thing that attracted me most to it was like, I can hack the system. I didn't have a job lined out. This is an opportunity to go figure out how to make a lot of money fast. That's what I need to do. I'm, I can hack the system again. And so I took the job and it was, it was six to 12 of the most miserable months of my life. <laughs> why, why is that? It, it, I learned so much about things that, that were interesting to me, but not things that I really thought were valuable for, for the, the types of customers that I was being kind of guided to go sell to. And, you know, like financial products and all this, like I didn't really believe in what we were selling. Like I, I definitely thought, I was like, okay, these are valuable things, but the sales methods that we're using to go sell to people don't seem to fit. Like these are things that if somebody wants them, great, but these are it's a very aggressive sales tactic. And I just don't like going and, and slinging yeah. things that I don't really believe in and trying to convince people why they should want what I have. That felt, yeah. it felt predatory to me. And it just, it didn't really fit with what I wanted to do. I wanted to be valuable to other people, but without having to, feel like I was, I was selling to people, if that makes sense. I, I, I had a really bad context for, for the way that I was supposed to do my job. Yeah, it seems very similar to how you felt about your college experience where you're stepping into this highly structured, more bureaucratic, large organization, and you're essentially forced to play someone else's game, like you said about college, instead of, hey, here's the outcome we're going for. You know, we want you to go figure out what's the best way to, to deliver that outcome and get results. Yeah, yeah. And, and the thing is, like, I was good at it. I, you know, the, if they start all of you in a training class, I was number one in that class. Like, I, I had hit all of the sales goal. I was a top producer for that class. I was, I was on my fast track to being successful and like having a career there if I wanted it. And I hated it though. And I knew that. And, and the fact that I hated it every day was just a reminder that I needed to figure something else out and I needed to figure it out fast. And I also felt this divergence happening that the more I leaned into this thing, the more of a detour it was taking me away from this idea of law school, which was kind of the next thing I had my target set on. And so yep. I, I finally just reached a breaking point. I walked into my boss's office one day and I just told him, it's like, this isn't for me. I'm going to quit. 
and he lost his mind on me and it's just like you're not going to get another job you need to blah 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 like just like challenging me that you know all the reasons why i should do this like yeah it's hard at first but you know you just can't be a wimp and blah blah and i was like no literally like i it's not that i'm not afraid of of hard work this is just not for me i hate it and he's like well you're going to have a hard time finding a new job and it's like i'll have another job in 24 hours <laughs> and i threw the gauntlet down and so i i had to figure it out fast and you know Sure enough, next day I put on a suit. It's 107 degrees outside in the Oklahoma summer. This is like August. It's it's so hot. I print off a stack of resumes and I go door to door to every law firm in this in the town where I I went to college. And you know, after I'd been out there and been told no like half a dozen times, I finally like stumbled into one law firm. Didn't even know it was a law firm. Lights are flickering. They just happened to be, you know, one of their legal aides just happened to be leaving in like a week or two. And he's like, oh my gosh, this is great. We've been looking for a replacement. Let me go, let me go see if they have time to meet with you right now. So I get a meeting with these two attorneys, just happen to be looking for somebody. I walk in the door, right place, right time and interview. Great. But they asked me, they asked me like, why should we hire you? And I remember like, while I was walking back to the conference room to be interviewed, like I was looking around and, you know, white fluorescent lights all flickering, half of them are out. And I just remember, you know, they asked me like, why should we hire you? I told him, I was like, well, I know how to make coffee and, and I can fix your lights. And I was just, I was being funny at the time, but they loved it. They laughed and they offered me a job on the spot and it was great. I did end up getting to fix their, I did end up getting to fix their lights one day, but I got the job and it was within my 24 hour gauntlet that I'd thrown down. Nice. All right. So now you're working at a law firm, you you busted your ass to, to kind of get to that point. Um, are you, are you in full kind of law school preparation mode? Yeah. So I'm, I'm studying for the, the, the LSAT, uh, just all the time outside and I'm, I'm diving into my job. I'm learning everything about, you know, working at a law firm and a law firm's operations as I can. Gotcha. All right. And what happened? Why you, you did not end up going to law school. What, what no. got in the way of that? No. So I, I had other irons in the fire as always. Like that's just what I've been accustomed to my entire life. And I like, I like doing things I like having side projects. And at that point in my life, like I wasn't making great money and I, I wanted to, to subsidize that. And I also had an interest like photography was something and, and like freelance marketing. I, I like, I was interested in those types of things. And so I had this side business side. It was more of a hustle. It wasn't really a business. It was, I, I was doing freelance photography and doing some like freelance marketing ad work, like creating ads, like literally print ads and, and flyers and those types of things for some small businesses. I was doing that on the side and about six months into my job, you know, I, I was, I was doing just fine in my job as far as I knew. About six months into my job, my, you know, one of the, one of the attorneys I worked for brought me into his office and they knew that I had this side thing going on. I, it wasn't distracting me from my work, but he brought me into his office and he said, I need, I, he said, I, if you ever want to be a serious attorney said, you need to stop screwing off with this photography thing. And it was out of the blue. This was not a pre-scheduled talk or anything. It was just out of the blue. And I was like, with all due respect, I disagree and I quit. What, why, why did you feel compelled to quit? I, well, 
working at a law firm was somewhat of an experiment for me. It was me getting a chance to try this profession on and see if I liked it. And it was also, there, there, were, there are all these negative ideas about what attorneys' lives are like. They're unhappy, they're you know, wearing golden handcuffs, they're divorced and all these kind of things. And like the people I was learning from at the time, like they seemed like all of the stereotypes. They seemed unhappy, they're you know, multiple marriages and like just not really people that I felt like I wanted to learn from in terms of who I wanted to be like if I was a successful attorney. And it just, it just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. It was like, wait, I don't know why. I don't know why this advice is wrong, but I just feel it's wrong and I can't be here. I just can't be here. I've got to go chase something else. And again, it wasn't that I had a clear picture laid out for me about what I should do next, but I just knew with resounding clarity at that moment in time, this right here, this is wrong for me and I need to go figure something else out. It seems like you have like these two conflicting goals at any given time. Like, all right, if I'm going to be in a particular system or structure, I'm, I'm going to do everything I can to win at it. And at the same time, you seems like you have a great distaste for being told how to do something or how, you know, like you said, having to play someone else's game. And these two things kind of keep coming up against each other and, and clashing. So like, eventually we know which one wins out, but what, <laughs> what, what was kind of like the last straw and be like, all right, I'm just going to go try and, and kind of pursue my own path instead of, picking different established paths to, to win at? Well, I think there's, there's a short anecdote I'll tell about working at the law firm that, that was what kind of set the wheels in motion for me. And, and on like starting to, to think about really, do I want to be an attorney? And it was, it was the day before Thanksgiving. And I sent out like 18 subpoenas to a family that was suing one of their siblings over inheritance. And I just remember it, it. I just remember thinking about how crazy that was, and I was like, "This is terrible. Like whether this is right or wrong, like this is not what I want to do. I want to be in a situation where the people I'm working with and the customers I have, like I'm making people better. I'm I'm giving something of value, and I'm not just like adding despair to the world. If that makes sense, like. And so I I think that I was I was spinning my wheels trying to figure that out. And I think once, yeah. once I quit that job, quitting that job was like burning the bridge. I didn't tell anybody. I didn't ask anybody what they thought. And once I'd burned that bridge, it was like, okay, I'm on, I have two strikes now. I've tried two jobs out of college and I have no excuses. And I know that everybody else is probably like worried about me trying to figure it out. And I was like, honestly, I don't care anymore. I don't care what people think. This photography thing is the thing that I'm most interested in. And I think that this is going, like, that's what I want to do next. I want to figure out how, how to use that and other things I'm interested in right now to go, go find an opportunity for myself. And that's when I, I was very interested in law, very interested in philosophy, very interested in economics, very interested in photography. And that's when I, I, I got an internship at Foundation for Economic Education doing photography. And I was like, wow, this is, this is a sign from the universe 
that I should go do this thing. Yeah. You, you finally were like, all right, you know what? Screw this. I'm going to pursue what I'm interested in right here, right now. And let's see where it goes instead of, Hey, I can go to law school. I can go to graduate school, et cetera. That's going to set me up to be in a particular situation, you know, 10 years from now, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. then you eventually, you eventually start working at a fintech startup called Ceteris, um, you know, through, through doing Praxis. What, how did you like, what interests were you following at that point? Like, all right, you have the experience at Fee, pretty, pretty awesome internship to, to, to have doing photography, getting to, getting to travel, being involved in like the ideas and philosophy that, that interests you. Now that next level, you end up at Ceteris. What, from your point of view, what, what were you following there? Yeah. So I, I think that part of it is, is what happened once I officially decided not to go to law school. I got in, had great scholarships. Everything was lined out, ready to go, teed up. And about two weeks before I was supposed to start, that's when I was like, I'm going to do Praxis. This seems like the right best next step for me because I don't know. And what, what kind of cool things could I figure out over the next year by working with people who are working on things that I'm excited about? And so when I pushed all my chips in the table that way, everyone around me in my life at that point was kind of like, whoa, is everything all right? And it, it was one of those situations where I was like, I don't, I'm not doing this because I care what other people think, yeah. but I have a chip on my shoulder now to prove everybody wrong, that they're all yeah. wrong. And it's on me now to show them that I can go pave my way and I can win on my own. I can go succeed by paving my own way, even if I don't know what those steps are. And so when I started thinking about, when I landed this opportunity, et cetera, and, and I started thinking about like, what, what do I wanna do? At the time, I was very interested in marketing and I was looking at the art org chart. I remember doing this. Um, I, I think I was very perceptive at this point. I was looking at the team and it was like, there's kind of a gap here. There are no full-time employees here. And there's not really a big sales team. There's one guy that's kind of doing a, a bunch of different things. And there's this part of the organization where there's nobody else. That's my opportunity. I need to go figure out how, how to get in there. And, you know, like I've already mentioned, once I'm in a system, I have to win. And so it was never like, how do I go be a good employee in, you know, in marketing? It was like, how do I run this thing? How do I go become the best? And it's easy when there's nobody else there, but it wasn't about myself compared to anybody else. It was just about proving that I deserved to run that part of the business. And now you're finally in an opportunity where you can kind of channel your competitiveness and your focus in a way where you can potentially be rewarded for doing your own thing. Yeah. And it was, it was such a crazy night and day shift too, because it was like, I'm getting paid to experiment and to learn, to literally go test ideas in the real world, things that interest me and things that also help this business. And it, it, was, it was like this, this coming together of so many kind of assumptions and feelings I had inside about the way the world worked, but I hadn't been able to articulate it yet where it was like, oh my gosh, I see yeah. this translation between 
value and like, you know, the, the effort and energy for the first time. And that was, that was a big thing for me. It was a big moment. I think and the moment lasted several years, but like that, that was a big thing, a big learning experience, I guess. For, for somebody that was kind of accustomed to more like laid out paths and like, all right, I'm going to win at these. Did it, did it feel like an adjustment to be in a more like open-ended situation or was it, did it feel very natural to you? And you felt like, Hey, I found, I kind of found my place for now. I, I think that it actually, I thrived more than I expected to. And I thrived because a lot of the things that I, that, that already were parts of my personality or, or the, the methods that I played the game inside the system still rewarded me really well. And, and what I mean by that is like in school, it was join every club and be a leader at every club, take on as many things as you can and be impressive as, a min- as Rack, many yeah. things as possible. Add, Rack it up. Add another item to your resume. And so when I was, when I was in that role in a fast growing startup where problems are abundant and time and resources from everybody that matters is scarce Here's little old me over here, low man on the totem pole, who's like, I've got so much time and there are so many problems. And a lot of them are literally just administrative things that people don't have time for and they're not important. And it was like, let me just load up my plate with absolutely everything. And it wasn't this intentional long-term strategy. It was literally like, I know that if I take on everything, I'm going to learn faster. I, I want to know how the entire business works. So, and, and I, I don't want to just be confined to marketing. What if I find out I don't like it? I better know how the rest of the business works so I can pivot and like navigate. I just, the, the fear of not having options kind of led to that. And so I took on as many things as possible and taking that initiative really panned out. It panned out well for me. Yeah. I think one of the lessons that I take away from, from your experience at Ceteris that I share with like participants all the time, two things like you were never afraid to just do as much grunt work as possible and you were never too good for it. Um, and I think there, that had huge long-term payoff for you. Um, but the other thing is like, not only did you do a bunch of grunt work, but you also like just took on new projects that you didn't know how to do and you just figured out how to do them. What, like, I don't like, I think that's a very tough skill is just like, how do I learn something on my own? What, what was like, was that challenging for you? Or did you feel like, all right, like I kind of know this process how to start. It's going to take a lot of hard work and time, but I'll go figure out how to do something. Yeah. It, I never saw it as, as something that be to be scared of or something that was like a hurdle to cross or, you know, I didn't yeah. have to cross a Rubicon. It was more of like little challenges for myself and also like throwing down the gauntlet. Like I remember in particular, you know, I'd, I'd been spending several months kind of building out the framework for, for the sales team. We were about to start building the sales team. I was hitting the phones. I was trying to figure out how to build lead lists. I was trying to figure out what metrics were reasonable to build compensation structures. I was doing all this legwork and I was learning so much stuff. And finally, we got to the point where we're going to make these decisions. We're going to start hiring a sales team and, and systematizing all these things. We need to have a system and structure in place. 
and I remember that we were going to roll out Salesforce and I'd, I'd used it some, but not a ton, but I was very familiar with other CRMs. And I remember, um, I think it was, you know, Levi CEO at the time and, and VP of sales, like talking about like, well, are you going to be able to adjust once we roll out Salesforce? And I was like, I'll learn it in two weeks. And I, I remember like just being so cocky and it, and part of it was cocky. Like looking back, like that's a very arrogant still, thing to say. Still had that chip on your shoulder. I had that chip on my shoulder, but it, it was also like, I'm so confident that I can learn anything on the fly that I'm going to figure it out. And like, even if it takes me, like, even if I have to my, bleed over into my personal time to learn these things, I now have a new target to hit and I'm going to go learn that. And, and having those little targets, like that, that's what kept me going. That's what drove me. I love crossing things off. I love the achievement awards. And, and part of that probably is like some psychological trauma from school, but that, that, <laughs> in, that has always been something that really excites me is having a little short-term goal to go knock out of the park and not just like, I literally mean knock it out of the park. Don't just go do it. Do it better than was you expected. And that's, that's just fun for me. Yep. All right. So you go from, you put in what? Almost, almost three years at Ceteris? Yeah. And you spent some time at Crash, another startup, and you eventually joined, joined Praxis and we're, uh, we're now working together what what most appealed to you from a personal perspective about joining Praxis and taking that on? I think that for several years, I had known that I wanted to go start my own business. I knew that even when I started Ceteris, I, I had expressed that. You were kind of already... I knew yeah, I wanted to go do my own thing one day. And that was yeah. the goal that I had I'd kind of set out to figure out how do I get to that point someday. And there were several points in, in the mix over the, that four, four-ish, five-year stretch where I was like, I'm gonna, someday I'm going to return this. I'm going to go do my own thing. I'm going to go do my own thing. And I think that probably the past two years in particular, I was starting to feel the, the, the rub of not, not being true to myself and not chasing that thing. And yeah. I, I love building things. I love figuring things out. I, I love being supporting somebody else's vision. But I think it was just this, this point where I was starting to feel stagnant in, in my own personal and professional growth, where it was like, in order to level up and, and yep. get past this, I have to put more skin in the game. I have to be in a situation where my back is against the wall and I have to win. I have to win again. And that was, that was kind of the mental shift is like, I, I need to, I need to be out of this situation where I'm an employee anymore because that's the only way I know how to increase my skin in the game. And also like get back on track on this like big, hairy, audacious gold that I had for myself to like become an entrepreneur. And that was a terrifying thing because it took me several months to admit that to myself. Only a few, only several months, only several months. Yeah. But once I did, it, it was like, you know, it takes, I mean, it takes most people a, a bit more time than that. Well, it'd probably been working on it for like four or five years, but, but like three or four months of like wrestling with what do I do yeah. next? Do I, do I go, am I just unhappy where I'm at? And I, and I knew that that wasn't the case because, because I loved what I was doing. I loved kind of this space that I was in. I felt like, like working at crash and, and doing that. Like I felt for the first time that I had found my arena 
like working with people, helping people figure out how to hack the system with their careers and their lives. That was like, man, this is, this is my space. But the way that I was doing it just wasn't kind of maxing out the, the scale for me. Like I knew there was some other way and I, I just, it made sense to me that I needed to have more skin in the game. I needed to be in a situation where at the end of the day, if the team lost, it was my fault. And it wasn't, you know, like I, I had to sign my name to something. And that was, that was a big step. Like it's a scary thing to realize that to be true to yourself, you have to go increase the skin in the game. That's a, that was a terrifying thing. Yep. Yeah. I think having that skin in the game and you, you put it in at different points before, you know, before joining Praxis, um, you know, I think, I think a great one is decide opting out of pursuing law school and choosing like, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to go pursue my own interests essentially. And that was very unexpected um, in your own, you know, family and social circles. And I think for a lot of people, that's a huge, that's a huge thing to overcome. And, and you're essentially, that is putting skin in the game of like your own social and personal capital, you know, like your reputation with, with the relationships you have with people. Um, and then it just, I think once you get a little taste of that, then you just want more of it. And you're trying to figure out like, okay, how can I, you know, all right, I'm at this stage. I need to level up again. What does that, you know, kind of uncomfortable level of, of skin in the game and, you know, a new experience look like, and you're, I think that's the thing about starting, like the difference between being more self-directed and being more, um, I guess, I guess path oriented. I think that it comes down to that essentially. Like you, you seek that out as opposed to waiting for it to, to come to you. Yeah. It's, it's, it's about, for me, what I, what I have found to be counterintuitive in my own career and, and really life over the years that, that is directly contradictory to what I thought as a, as a kid and in college is that it's, it's actually never been about chasing the thing that I was after. It's been about running away from the things I didn't want. It's been about, you know, to, to steal the wise words from somebody, don't do stuff you hate. It's, it's literally been about escaping discomfort. Like the things that I hated inside I, I just saw those things trickling out into other areas of my life. When I was doing work that I hated, I was not a fun person to be around. I was, I was, I was discontent all the time. And it wasn't until I got that first taste of like, wow, I love doing this stuff that it was like, wow, there's this entire other side to my life and the satisfaction that I've been missing that just so many more things are, are better as a result. Like I'm more interested in ideas. I find myself having more energy. There's just like all these different things. And I think that, that that's been a big lesson for me. And I, yeah. I try to, I try to remind myself that anytime I feel like I'm in pain for an extended period of time. One, one last note that I think is, is important to point out, like you always had that like strong bias for action. So like whatever you were, whatever situation you were in, you went all in, like you joined all the clubs, you did all the orgs, you, you know, you found experiences on a college campus that, you you could kind of commit to even if you didn't love like the classroom environment overall 
And that's through those experiences, like that's how you figured out, all right, I tried something, didn't like it. Now I'm going to go try the next thing. And you follow that gut. I think, especially early on, figuring out what you don't like, whether yeah. it's like a specific type of work or an activity or like just in general environment or, you know, Hey, I don't actually don't want to be around these types of people. Um, it's probably a better North star than trying to figure out like, Hey, I'm going to sit around and think about what I'm most passionate about. And then yep. once I identify what that is, I'm going to go after it. Well, it's, it's, it's like, I'm going to make one more point. Then I'll be wrap up. Like it's, it's a lot like finding product market fit for an early stage company. And yep. one of the things, the mental models that I love is this idea of iteration cycle. And when I was younger, the iteration cycles were a lot faster and shorter term. And it was like, I can run 50 different tests while I'm in school. I can be a part of like 20 different clubs. I can be working a part-time job. I can do all these things. And anytime I don't like one of those things, I can quit. But as, as I learned more about myself and the things that I enjoyed, those iteration cycles changed and they became longer. Like, I was at some jobs once I got into my career for, you know, for a long, longer period of time because I loved what I was doing and it took longer for me to, to like, you know, graduate out of that cycle. But when I was just getting started out and I had no idea, it was test as many things as possible and run those tests as quickly as possible. And that was accidental. But like, had I had that knowledge then, I probably would have probably have done even more things, you know, but that's a, that's one of my favorite ways to think about it now, I think. Yep. All right, Mitchell, thanks so much for sharing your story and uh, see you next episode. All right. Thanks. Thanks.